Before we start with today's message, I wanted to let you know that your time with God doesn't have to end when this devotion does. Oh, it's Pastor Mike, by the way. <laughs> if you still find yourself wanting more great resources that take you deep into God's Word and deeper into the faith that you want, just visit us at timeofgrace.org. However you learn best, I bet we've got something for you. From our sermons, to our video devotions, to written devotions, to books, to blogs, and, of course, to more podcasts. One more time, just visit timeofgrace.org. I'll see you there. Is it immodest or sinful for a woman to wear leggings? Yeah, that was a question that was recently asked of me at our church's Q&A Sunday. Is it immodest for a woman to wear leggings? Now, what could go wrong if a, a male pastor comments on what clothing is appropriate or not for female Christians to wear? But, but it's actually a good question, right? And the Bible has something to say about it, although not specifically. Now, obviously, there's no chapter and no passage about wear this, but don't wear that. Uh, these things are approved from God and these things are on his no-no to wear list. We're never going to find that, but we do find some principles in the Bible and they're really good to think about. In modern times, you know, leggings is the trend. But if you think about different generations and different cultures, well, there's different amounts of skin or shape that different fashions show. When I remember when I was a middle schooler, uh, I think body suits was this like really popular thing that girls wore that really showed every curve of their body. Uh, even back in Renaissance times, think about those low-cut dresses that most women used to wear to dances. Was that immodest? Was that sinful? Think of 70s fashion or you know, all kinds of things. You go to the beach. What is God okay with and what is he not? Now, passionate followers of Jesus want to make sure what we're doing is okay with Jesus. So this is a great question. Is it immodest or sinful to wear leggings? Let me say just a few things. Number one, to be absolutely clear, the body that God gave us is a good thing. In the beginning, God made us both body and soul, and he looked at everything that he had made, and it was good. It's often these discussions, we're left feeling ashamed of our bodies or embarrassed of our bodies, or we have to cover our bodies up because they're bad, but they're not bad. All right, if, if God made you tall and lanky like me, that, that's okay. That's, that's how he made me. <laughs> if you're a, a curvaceous woman, that's okay. That's how God made you. So I just want to say really clearly, uh, our Heavenly Father is the creator of our bodies He's a good creator. And so our bodies, by very nature, are good. The second thing I would say is that all of us have a responsibility to watch our own eyes. I think a lot of this discussion often comes down to what women wear and how men look at women. But before we talk at what they wear, let's talk about how we men look. And we could say how women look too. The very righteous man Job in Job chapter 31 verse 1 said this, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Job didn't say, well, all these young women are leading me into temptation. No, he said, I made a covenant, like this solemn agreement with my own eyes. Listen here, eyes. We are not going to look lustfully at any women. So Job took responsibility for where he looked and how long he looked and if he looked again, if he was tempted by something. No, he, he made that covenant and he bounced his eyes away. So that's the number one thing I would want you to know. Like, let's start with the idea that God gave us eyelids. <laughs> he gave us neck muscles. We might notice someone who's maybe 
tempting us to lust. You know, we're drawn into that by the enemy, but we absolutely, by the power of the Spirit and by the power of the body that God gave us, can turn away, can close our eyes. We don't have to look. So it is our responsibility to guard our own holiness. We can pull a Job in those tempting situations and make this covenant with our eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. But I also don't want to dodge a question. What about when I'm trying to figure out what to wear uh, to a pool party? Or I go to the beach or I'm at the gym. What do I wear? I, I think about I play soccer uh, on a co-ed team in the summer and, you know, sweaty jersey afterwards. Can I peel that nasty thing off and, and be there in front of my female teammates? Is that wrong? If, if they do the same thing and they have a sports bra on, is, is that wrong? Are they leading me into temptation? You know, often in modern America, we miss uh, the Bible's answer to that question. We tend to think about our rights. Like, okay, tell me where the line is, what's good, what's bad, and then don't judge me if it's not technically bad. Uh, But Jesus and the authors of the scriptures had more to say about it. They talked about loving our neighbor so much that we would do anything in our power not to lead them into temptation. And we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, our Father in heaven, lead us not into temptation. Us. Jesus taught us to pray and be very aware of the temptation that we, that us, have to face each day. And so that's a fair question. Not is there a list of things I can or can't wear, but is this outfit going to lead others into temptation? Hmm. That gives us lots to think about, huh? Let me say this to my sisters in Christ. Having talked to my wife and a lot of other women, and this is a stereotype that's not always true, but men tend to be way, way, way more visual than the average woman. What is the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue? Why is that a thing? Um, Why is pornography so explosive among men? Because men just have this connection and attraction with our eyes. So this this is a valid question for Christians to ask. How can we not lead each other into temptation? Now, I said I wasn't going to give you a list of things you can or can't wear, but I think all of us should think about this, not just what makes me feel good or pretty or beautiful or attractive, handsome or sexy, but how can I honor God with my body and not lead my neighbor into temptation? I think if we thought about our neighbor a little bit more, we might uh, choose carefully. So I want to say a prayer today since this requires wisdom. Uh, Dear Father, uh, help us to know what to do. Uh, You say in the word that we should eat and drink and do everything to your glory, that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. So we, in this moment, we relinquish our rights and instead we care about doing what's right. We care about the holiness of our brothers and our sisters. God, we don't want to be legalistic. We don't want to add rules. We don't want to be those Christians who made mistakes in the past. But we also want to be wise and honest and faithful. So God, as we stand in front of the closet and pick what to wear, uh, help us to remember what your word says. When we notice someone who's attractive, maybe even looks sexy, help us, like Job, to make a covenant with our eyes and to walk the path of holiness. We need your help on both sides of this issue to do it. So give us wisdom, give us humility, and more than anything, Father, give us love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you won't be married in heaven, what's the point of marriage on earth? 
Uh, someone recently asked me that question at our church's Q&A Sunday, and I love that question because you might not know how the question began. You're not married in heaven. That's true. Did you know that? I, I don't think you get to wear the ring because there's no marriage in heaven. In Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees were trying to trap Jesus. Uh, they told them a story about this woman who married a guy and then he died, so she remarried. And then the second guy died and she kept remarrying. All these guys kept dying. Oh, and now she gets to heaven. Who is she married to, Jesus? <laughs> Here's what Jesus says to their absurd question. He says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So Jesus is reminding us that forever and ever, we will not be husband and wife. The angels who are happier than you have ever been, uh, they don't take vows and get married. No. For some of you, that's a huge stumbling block. What? My wife's watching this video. I'm like, yes. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Right? I mean, for those of us who have good marriages, we, we can't imagine not being married, like getting to heaven. Wait, you're not my spouse. We're not going to have the same home. Well, how, how could I be happy? And so some people wonder, well, what's up with that? Here's my short answer. Um, when you see God's face, <laughs> you are not going to be worried about your relationship status. The angels in heaven aren't pacing the halls of heaven wondering when they can find a date. They, they get to see the face of God and it makes them happier than any relationship you've ever had. Any marriage, any friendship, raising kids, it is nothing compared to seeing God's face. You don't have to worry if you play golf or soccer in heaven, if your cat or your dog is going to be there. Come on, we are talking about the presence of God to see his face. I need you to know that. Some people think heaven is boring. You sit on a cloud and wear a diaper and play a harp and you need all these things. You don't need those things to be happy. Heaven is the most thrilling place because you get to see and know God better than you ever have before. I care about this question. <laughs> Can you tell? All right, but now back to the original question. Wait, so if that's not in heaven, you just you know, be with God and his people somehow and everything's great, then why do we have marriage on earth? Well, lots of answers to that question. We could talk about the stability of society. We could talk about raising children with you know mom and dad in the home. The, the commitment, the vow of marriage is so good in so many ways. Um, but I'm going to pick just one. Uh, marriage on earth, it's not for everyone. It wasn't for Jesus or Paul, but it is for many of us. Marriage on earth gives you a glimpse of the God who knows you and yet still loves you. I'll say that again. Uh, when you have a good marriage, you get a glimpse of the God who knows so much about you and yet still loves you so much. Married people, do you get what I'm getting at? Uh, because, you know, I'm on a TV show and I do a lot of stuff online, I will often meet people who think I'm a better person than I actually am. <laughs> Sometimes I'll be with my wife and with my kids and some like fan of Time of Grace or church will come running up. Oh, Pastor Mike, such an honor to meet you. And, you know, they're gushing. And <laughs> I wish you could see the expression on my family's faces. They're like, what? Dad? <laughs> Kim's like, oh, no, no, no. The luster wears off. He's very human and she's very right. I mean, she knows. She, she's seen me at my best 
am I worse? She's seen me with a stack of Kleenexes blowing my nose. She's seen me bl blow up and lose my cool. She's seen my sin. She's seen my good works. She's seen more of me than almost any human besides my parents. And yet she loves me. I've given her th thousands of reasons to not love me, but she still loves me. She is as close to unconditional. She chose me. She could have, she, such an amazing woman. She could have chosen many people. She chose me. And she keeps choosing to be with me despite knowing all of me, the worst parts of me. That is. It's just a glimpse of God. God knows you. He knows what you think, what you say, your weaknesses, your sins. And yet, every day he chooses to pay attention to you. He chooses to forgive you. He chooses to be your father in heaven. If you ask me, what is the point of marriage on earth? I, I wouldn't just talk about the stability of society. I would talk about a glimpse of the gospel, fully known and yet fully loved by God himself. You don't have to be married to be happy or to be Christian. But for those of us who are, what a happy thought to know that just like my spouse, God knows, sees, and yet loves. He still chooses me. Why pray if God already knows what you're going to say? Recently, someone asked me that question at our church's annual Q&A Sunday. <laughs> like, what's the point? If God is God, if God knows all things, why do you need to tell him what you need or what you want or what you're sorry for? He already knows. Why, why are we wasting our time with an unnecessary conversation? If God knows what you're going to say, then why pray? Hmm. Well, there's a, a little bit of logic to that. God is omniscient. That fancy word that means he knows everything. So he knows you, your feelings, your heart, your experiences. Why bother? Well, here's a really simple answer. Because God says. <laughs> so are there passages in the Bible where God says, pray, call upon me? Yes. Did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Yes. Did the Apostle Paul tell us to pray continually? For sure. Is there a thing like the Lord's Prayer where Jesus actually gives us an amazing script or outline to follow? For sure. So you have to say, according to the Bible, the answer is pretty obvious. You should pray. Does God know everything? Yes. Should you still pray? Yes. But if you're a person who likes to, you know, debate or <laughs> get down to the reasons at the bottom of something, you would still ask, well, why? Why would, the whole, why would Jesus and Paul and the whole Bible tell us to do it if God already knows it? Well, I love the answer that we find in Psalm 50. In Psalm 50, God is talking about those days when you're in trouble, when you need help. You know, maybe for you, you really messed something up and you're just troubled by something you can't change. You know, that thing you said, that choice you made, that's your day of trouble. Or maybe it's a, a medical thing. It's cancer. There's a surgery. Something's wrong with the baby. The doctors are concerned. That's a really troublesome day. You might have relational issues with your kids or your partner. You know, whatever it is. Here's this day of trouble. Listen to what God says about such days. Psalm chapter 50, verse 15. Call on me in the day of trouble. Cry out to me. C call me. Like, <laughs> send me a text as you start to pray and have this conversation. Call on me in the day of trouble. Here's why. 
I will deliver you and you will honor me. Hear those three steps? You call on me, you pray. I'll answer, I'll deliver you. And after I deliver you, you will honor me. Which makes total sense when you think about it. If you never prayed and God just answered, would you realize that God had answered? If you never asked for safe travels or food or resolution and you just got it, would would you be wise enough to remember that God was the one who had given it to him? I have a hunch you'd be a lot like me and you'd forget God was part of that process. you think it was just you know, dumb luck or a good day or something just happened. No. When prayer is part of the conversation, when you ask and then God answers, when you need something and then God provides it, you, oh, you think, wow, thank you, God. Like the psalm says, you honor him. The relationship gets stronger. Right? If all the meals in our home just appeared on the table and my kids couldn't see me or they didn't talk to me, would they think, well, mom and dad made this meal for us? Or being part of that conversation, seeing it up close, strengthens the relationship because the point of your life is not just getting the stuff, the stuff that you're praying for. The point of your life is a relationship with God. And so if prayer is included, the relationship gets stronger. Call on me in the day of trouble, God says, I will deliver you and you will honor me. That's why you pray, even though God already knows what you're going to say. How does asexuality fit into the Bible? Oh, I love this question. Someone recently asked that at our church's annual Q&A Sunday. And it's a question that I get all the time when I talk about sexuality at a local Christian high school. How, how does that fit? Well, let's talk about that for a little bit. First, a definition. Uh, asexual, the word sexual with an A on the front, just means someone who is not really driven by sexual desire. They have a very, very low sexual desire. Maybe they have no sexual desire. They're not prompted to lust. They're not you know, eager to have sex. They just don't experience those feelings. You're probably familiar with the acronym LGBTQIA+, and the A stands for asexual. So it's not the point of this video, but other videos talk about what God says about being gay or lesbian. The Bible has something to say in Genesis 1 about gender, that's the T. Um, but here's this A in the bunch. How does that fit? And no one's asking me, but I don't think it should be in the acronym. <laughs> Is there anything in the Bible that says thou shalt not be asexual? Uh, no. Is there anything in the Bible that says unless you want to have sex frequently, you're not a follower of Jesus? <laughs> Well, no. I mean, Jesus himself didn't have sex frequently. He didn't have sex at all. So is it a requirement of holiness and obedience to be a sexual person? And the answer is, is no. Do you have to have a strong sexual desire to have a strong faith in God? Obviously, the answer is no. And the proof, the best proof is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Apparently, the Corinthians reached out to the Apostle Paul, who started their church, and they had a whole bunch of questions about a whole bunch of things. Here was one of them. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. All right, so that seems to be the point. It's actually good. It's not a bad thing. 
It's not a sinful thing. Paul goes on to say, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. So he, you know, he's saying, you know, it's good not to have sex, but if, if not having sex is like leading you into temptation, in this case, he says, like, if you're married and you're not super sexual and then someone's running around and cheating, like, yeah, you should be faithful and sexual within your marriage. He goes on to say, verse six, I say this as a concession, like, be married, enjoy sex. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. You might know that the Apostle Paul was not married, but single. He called it a gift. Because he wasn't married, he didn't have children. He, he wasn't like driven by sexual desires, giving into lust, running around, sleeping with prostitutes. He actually, he had a lot of time as a single guy to pour himself out into ministry. He calls it a gift and an amazing opportunity. And that should be a really good clue to us that uh, being asexual or not driven by sexual passions, not a bad thing or a sinful thing. You kind of wonder if it was a Paul thing. I want to be cautious with that statement. I'm not saying definitively that Paul was asexual, but based on this teaching, we knew he wasn't driven by this fire and this passion to have sex. He called that a real gift from God. So if you feel that way, if you're not driven by a strong desire for sex, don't feel bad. You don't need to change. You should think about that a lot before you get into a relationship that leads to marriage and sex is a great gift for marriage. But by itself, it could be this gift, maybe, that Paul had. He said, I wish all of you were like I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. That's how asexuality fits into the Bible. If anxiety is a sin, what happens to someone who succumbs to it and dies by suicide? Uh, hundreds of questions came in at our church's recent Q&A Sunday, but this one uh, maybe had the most emotion and importance behind it. You know, lots of us struggle with anxiety. The Bible says to not be anxious. It's not how God wants us to live. But if that's so powerful for you that you just, you don't see a way out. And in that tragic moment, you take your own life. What happens? It's a sin. Were you unrepentant of that sin? Did you not have time to say sorry to God? You took your own life, which is also sinful. Do you go to heaven or did you throw heaven away in the midst of your sin? Now, I know that this is not just a theoretical question. I know that some people who struggle with darkness and anxiety and depression and mental health see it as the only escape. I can think of a man right now, I can see his face and his family who loved the things of God. And the day he took his own life, there were books about Jesus next to his computer when the family found the remains. Uh, what happens? Let's open a Bible and speak God's truth to that emotional question. First of all, the premise, is anxiety a sin? Philippians 4 verse 6 says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. 
And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a command. Don't be anxious. Just like the Bible says, what, hundreds of times, do not be afraid. When we see something concerning, when we think about, like, what if and, and what about, it makes us afraid. It makes us anxious. God says, I, I want you to trust me. I want you to believe that I'm in control of everything. I'm going to work it all out to your good. Call upon me in that day of trouble. Thank me for everything that I've given you through Jesus. Ask me for what you need. I don't want you to live in anxiety. That isn't a suggestion. That's a command from God. Don't be anxious. And sort of feel anxiety and fear and indulge it instead of resisting it is like seeing an attractive person and indulging with lust instead of resisting it. We can't say yes. God does not want us to be anxious. Uh, that is a sin. And if I had about four more hours, I would, I would talk to you about how Jesus forgives that sin. I mean, I, I love people who struggle with this sin all the time. Just like I have my sins, I struggle with all the time. And some of us, some of you are going to battle anxiety for a long time. God is patient. He's merciful. He's forgiving. I need you to know that. But what if you know someone who followed Jesus, was deep in a struggle with anxiety, and took their own life? Uh, they committed suicide. And I choose the verb committed because it is a spiritual crime. They didn't just die by suicide like you die by a heart attack. They made a choice and it was wrong and it was evil and it hurts the people who survive. If you committed suicide in the midst of that dark mental health spot, what happens to you? Well, let me give you my answer and then I want to prove it with the Bible. A Christian who's struggling with mental health and in that dark moment takes their life goes to heaven. They do. It is not a certain sin that condemns you. It is unbelief that condemns you. In John chapter 3, we learn that God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Right? The one who believes in Jesus is not condemned, but the one who rejects God's son is condemned. Look up John chapter 3, I think verse 36, 316, and 318 to prove that. Believers in Jesus are saved. Those who don't believe are not. But some people would say, well, don't you need to repent? And if I commit this sin, I don't have time to repent. I don't have time to say sorry to God. I mean, maybe if I take some pills and the death is slow, I can cry out and confess it. But what if I can't? Well, what then? Well, I think that would be a misunderstanding of what it means to repent. If your understanding is, well, I'm a Christian now, but then I worried, so I'm not a Christian. But if I say, oh, God, I'm sorry, well, now I'm a Christian again. And then I get really angry at someone as I'm driving, I'm not a Christian. But an hour later, I'm like, oh, God, I'm sorry for getting angry, and now I'm a Christian again. If you think that you're in and out of the Christian faith every time you sin and then need to confess, if you think you're repentant and then you're not repentant after every, that, I mean, wouldn't that be terrifying, by the way? <laughs> if you had to confess everything verbally to be a repentant follower of Jesus? Uh, no, that's not how it works. Uh, the Bible says, like, you are a child of God unless you harden your heart and push the Holy Spirit away in unrepentance. When you stop struggling and just, you're, you're done, the door's locked, I'm going to do what I want. How about an analogy? What if I'm on the phone in an argument with someone, I'm being selfish, I'm trying to win, and I'm driving my car. I shouldn't be on my phone while I drive my car, but I am. 
and I, I run a red light, boom! And I get broadsided and I die in the midst of my argumentation, selfishness, and sin. Do I miss out on heaven? Do I think I'm going up to Jesus and an angel says, ooh, sorry, yeah, you got angry and you didn't apologize? No. No, I was a believer in the moment of sin. I was not an unrepentant, hard-hearted unbeliever. And so that's why I would say if a person in the midst of their sin ends their own life, if they commit suicide, they're not condemned to hell. They were just a, a weak Christian who gave in in a moment of weakness. It doesn't mean it's not a terrible thing to do. I know some of you are struggling deeply with depression and you see this as an, wait, I can go to heaven too, even if I do that? No, please, that is a sin. You shall not murder. God says you will hurt so many people so deeply, so don't. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. He still loves you. He does not want you to make that choice. But if you, like a family I know, has a loved one who's made that choice, who you know loved Jesus but just struggled so deeply, take heart. God so loved the world that he gave his one and his only son that whoever believes in him, even anxious people, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you're watching this video because you personally have considered suicide, please know that God wants you to live. He is a God of life and even if you can't see it in this dark moment, he has a bright future of hope for you. And that's why we want to help. Please remember that the National Suicide Prevention Line is available 24-7. You can find it by dialing 988.